Now would you join me in, as I read a passage of Scripture that's so apropos for the message this morning and for the music that we have already sung. And I'd like you to stand, please, for the reading of God's Word, which is from the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, beginning with verse 46. It's an event in the life of Jesus. Listen to it. And so they reached Jericho. Later, as they left town, a great crowd was following. Now it happened that a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road as Jesus was going by. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus from Nazareth was near, he began to shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Shut up, some of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted the louder again and again, O son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped there in the road and said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man. You lucky fellow, they said. Come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus yanked off his old coat and flung it aside, jumped up and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. Oh, teacher, the blind man said, I want to see. Jesus said to him, all right, it's done. Your faith has healed you. And instantly, the blind man could see and followed Jesus down the road. And may God use this word to illuminate our eyes the eyes of our spirit and our understanding. Father, bless this word. Thank you for this event. And speak to us as we continue in this hour to worship you, the light of life. For it is in your name we pray. Amen. Tommy and Charlotte and I have had a marvelous privilege for the past week to be ministering in Interlochen, Switzerland, to the European Baptist Convention meeting, attended by over a thousand people from 14 different countries of Europe. And Tommy and Charlotte did a superb job, as they always do, and led workshops for ministers of music, and we were involved in small groups, pastors and groups, and then services each night, and uh, preached and sang, and invitations given, decisions made in every service, and an opportunity to be a part of uh, what's happening uh, to an exciting group of people in a changing part of the world. And we got back late Friday. I left uh, Interlochen a few hours earlier than Tom and Charlotte and Carolyn and Eva Jane uh, and met them that evening in Zurich and then flew home the next day because I wanted to get to Zurich for a personal pilgrimage that I wanted to take. And I got there and checked into the hotel out by the airport and then took the train back into town. And uh, Zurich is a beautiful, magnificent city. If you visited there, you know how pretty it is, how delightful it is to visit. And I went down to the, to, uh, the river, down to the old part of the city, the main part of the ancient part of, of Zurich, to the great church there the Grossmünster Church, which is where Zwingli was pastor. Now, Zwingli was one of the 
reformers, Martin Luther, uh, Zwingli, uh, John Calvin, um, Melanchthon, Farrell, a great group of people, uh, in many ways uh, inspired by the life and the ministry and work of John Huss of Prague. But Zwingli, uh, all of them broke with the, from the Roman Catholic Church, and yet they still believed in a church-state kind of arrangement. They just wanted their church to be in charge of the state instead of the Roman church to be in charge of the, of the state. And so as a result of that, they had severe conflicts with your forefathers and mine, yours and mine in the sense of Baptists. Because a group of people called the Anabaptists, which really means rebaptizers, are people who believe that you accept Christ first and then are baptized rather than being baptized into the established church and become a Christian because your family was a Christian or because of your uh, race or because of your language. We believed in an experiential kind of religion where you put your faith and trust in Christ and that there is no substitute for that and that the scripture says that following that experience you're baptized as an outward expression of this inner experience. And what the Anabaptists were really saying was, it's okay for you all to believe what you want to believe, but let us believe what we want to believe. I mean, it's all right for you to believe that way, but give us the right to interpret the scripture for ourselves as we feel impressed. We do not believe that the church and state ought to be organizationally linked. We feel that they should influence one another, but we do not feel that they should be organically one with the other. And so our Anabaptist brethren, uh, the Moravians, uh, Mennonites, uh, River Brethren, Quakers, all off of the same, out of the, out of the same concept, uh, we said, no, we have a different opinion. Well, they were vociferously, vigorously, viciously opposed by the church establishment that had been set up by Zwingli in Zurich, by Calvin uh, in Geneva, by Luther in Germany. And so these Anabaptists were persecuted. Your spiritual forefathers and mine died, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, because they believed in freedom and the right to a private interpretation of the scripture. And it's the very thing we are still contending for and concerned about and still believe. Now these men were sincere. They were just prisoners of, of the times in which they lived. They were, they were controlled by their culture and by custom. As Seneca said, custom is king. And it often is. And so the theology came second to custom and to what was normally done. So it was a troubled time. Why did I want to go down and stand at the Grossmonster at the church where Zwingli pastored? Because on a cold January day, January the 5th, 1527, a trial was being conducted in the church house which is right there facing the river, the big church right behind it that was there then. A trial was being conducted in that room. And across the river, a small group of believers, and among them, the mother 
of Felix Manz, M-A-N-Z. He was on trial because he was a Baptist. They found him guilty, wrapped his body in chains, and threw him out the window into the river. And I stood there and I said to myself, what a heritage you and I have in people who have been willing to pay that kind of price for the right to interpret and to practice the Word of God as we believe it in our hearts and in our lives. And in many ways, the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States had its birth in such places as Zurich and people like Felix Mann. Why did they do that? Why did they do it? Well, they missed the point. They had a lot of things right, but they missed the point. And what they missed is the point. We're saved by grace or by works. It may be this church's works or this church's works or this church's works, but it's works. It may be baptism, it may be the Lord's Supper, it may be certain rules of behavior, works. That's it, over here on this side of the river in Zurich, and out there on the other side of the river, watching their own being martyred, are folks who say we're saved by grace and grace alone, and that it's not Jesus plus anything. And that grace is the entrance to the church, not the church, the way to grace. That Christ is the door of the church, not the church, the door to Christ. And salvation does not reside in an institution, in a church, in a denomination, in a sacrament, in an ordinance, but in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And our Baptist forefathers and others by the hundreds died to keep alive that conviction and that truth. And we're heirs to their commitment. We're the recipients of their faithfulness. And it says something to me about who and what we ought to be in our day for freedom, for the right to interpret the Word of God as we see fit. Every man has the right to be wrong. As long as your interpretation does not in any way inflict upon me any damage of any sort or infringe upon my own privileges of freedom of interpretation. Why? I say, that's just impossible, Buckner, that people would behave like that. Well, it didn't start then. Let's go back even further. Go back with me to Jesus' hometown when he visits it the first time after he's begun his ministry. I'm reading from the account recorded in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning with the 18th verse. Jesus had come home. 
He'd grown up there, worked in the carpenter shop, a little boy gone to school, went to Hebrew school, played in the streets. And he went off and he started preaching and they started hearing about him. My, my, we're hearing things about him. Rumors began to float back to Nazareth. And Nazareth was a pretty good-sized city. Edersheim and uh, Josephus and others say it was a city probably of 30,000, 40,000 people. And a lot of people lived in that area at that time. And Jesus came back home and he went to the synagogue. He'd grown up there. It's his home church, like Jimmy Weidman, coming to preach tonight. Toby Snowden, here last Sunday. Renee singing this morning. I mean, coming home. Jesus came home. Oh, Jesus, how are you? Glad to see you. Been hearing about you. Well, it's good to see you. And uh, this right, uh, this invitation to, to read the scripture for the day wasn't something reserved for the rabbi. They could invite anybody in the congregation, any man in the congregation to do it. So they invited Jesus to do it. So he got up and he read the scripture for the day. And this is what it is. And I'm reading from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus speaking, reading from the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to announce that captives shall be released and the blind shall see, that the downtrodden shall be freed from their oppressors and that God is ready to give blessings to all. Put a circle around that. I did in my Bible. To all who come to him and he closed the book and handed it back to the attendant and sat down oh and they were all amazed at that they were so happy about it he said to them this day the scriptures are fulfilled in your presence and all of them were there spoke well of him didn't he talk nice didn't he have a good voice I taught him in Sunday school yeah I was his coach, basketball team. I've known Jesus. Yeah. Didn't he do good? They were amazed by the beautiful words that fell from his lips. Didn't he read well? I wonder where he learned all that. How can this be? They said, isn't this Joseph's son? My, he's turned out good, hasn't he? We always knew he was a good carpenter, made good chairs and tables. And boy, could he build a house, but... Who knew he had this kind of ability? Ah, that was good. They didn't notice for a moment where he had stopped or where he was going because he wasn't through. And where he stopped is very significant. I want to point it out to you because I go back now to the 61st chapter of the book of Isaiah, the passage that Jesus was reading. And I want you to read, I want you to let me read it to you again. This is what he read, and I want to show you where he stopped. He stopped before the scripture had been finished, or was finished being read. He stopped. That's a key to what happened. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the suffering and afflicted. He said that. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to announce liberty to captives, and to open the eyes of the blind. He said that. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of God's favor to them has come. He said that, but the sentence isn't over. But he stopped. What didn't he read? I'll read it to you. And the day of his wrath to his enemies. He didn't read that. Why didn't he read it? Because he 
came to bring good news of the grace of God and of salvation for any person and for every person, and that judgment was something that would be incurred by us on the basis of our response to His grace, not His anger toward us. He's saying, here is the good news, and the kind of judgment that follows will be totally dependent upon your response to the good news of unconditional love and its inevitable corollary, unconditional forgiveness and unconditional grace. My goodness, the tendency to make grace our exclusive possession is to contradict the very nature of grace itself. Whether it's the pride of race or the pride of grace, both of them can be exclusive. And Carl Sandburg was asked what he thought was the worst word in the English language, and he said, exclusion. I believe Jesus would agree, exclusion. He came to include us all in his love and in his grace. And anybody, any group in the 1500s or the 1990s, whether they follow Zwingli in Zurich or somebody else in Atlanta or Nashville, anybody that endeavors to limit the application of God's grace is contrary to the message that was once delivered to all of us by Jesus Christ himself. So he stopped before the scripture was over. But then he preached. These people had heard, these people knew the Bible, they believed the Bible, they just didn't believe the meaning of the Bible. They worshiped the words, not the word. They knew all of this, but Jesus applied it to them in such a way that it created the most unbelievable and unexpected response. Catch the significance of this. He said, for example, remember how Elijah the prophet used a miracle to help the widow of Zarephath, a foreigner from the land of Sidon, from Lebanon? Do, do you remember, he said, how how there were a lot of Jewish widows. He goes on to say there were many Jewish widows needing help in those days of famine, for there had been no rain for three and a half years, and hunger stalked the land, yet Elijah was not sent to them. God's messenger went to this woman foreigner. They knew that, but they'd not heard that. He wasn't through. Or think of the prophet Elisha who healed Naaman, a Syrian, a Syrian, a foreigner, a non-Jew, rather than many Jewish lepers needing help. I mean, to be a leper is bad enough. Jesus got in a lot of hot water with the re religionists of his day because he cared for lepers, but to, to talk about back in their history that they were unwilling to listen to and see and apply to the present, He's saying God cared about a Syrian leper, a two-time loser. These remarks stung them to fury. 
This was in their Bible. And they'd get together in conventions and say, we believe the Bible. Well, then believe the meaning of the Bible. Well, wait a minute. You're talking about Lebanese widows and Syrian lepers. They're not one of us. Stung them to fury and jumping up, they mobbed him. Look at this. It's almost incomprehensible, isn't it? Do you believe people really want to know the truth? I wonder sometimes whether we really want to face the truth. We're so addicted to illusion, we may be, may be incapable for some people to accept the truth. Malcolm Mudridge said, you can say anything you want to as long as it's not the truth. If you start telling the truth, people start getting reaction, negative reaction. That's what you got here. They mobbed him, took him to the edge of the hill on which the city was built to push him over the cliff. But he walked away through the crowd and left. Now, for just a minute, before I come to the conclusion of this, I want to say a word about what Jesus has come to do for you. Forget the church, forget the denomination, forget the ecclesiastical authority, forget church history, forget all that stuff for a few minutes. And let's talk about what's happening inside each one of us, where you are, and where I am right now. came to bring good news to the poor, to poor people. Christians ought to be concerned about people who are physically, materially poor. The Bible says we're to care for the poor. We start blaming this system or that system or this party or that party or this group or that group. Look, Jesus said, help Poor people. I'm not caring about any special interest group. I'm calling about, I'm talking about God. Help the poor. We have poor people in this church. Oh, you may not know it. I know it. Some of the people on our staff know them. Having a real difficult time, and you may be here this morning having a very difficult time. We try to help people. We have some folks who have given some money. We have part of our budget to help people through the, some crisis times, bills they can't pay, car payment, they're going to lose their car, going to get their phone turned off, some just can't make it, they're going to not be able to get to work. We're to help people. Well, you sound like a do-gooder. You're right. I believe Christians ought to do good. That's what Jesus did. He said, they said he went around doing good. Shouldn't his followers go around doing good? I'd sure like to be of the do-gooder rather than a do-badder. I get my choice. There are poor people that need help. We need to help them. We need to help them in our community while we're getting involved in Habitat for Humanity while we're involved in the SAM Center and the CAM Center. 
to help people. I'm particularly concerned about single mothers, so many of them on fixed incomes and in jobs where they have very little chance for salary increase and they're trying to care for children, put them in daycare centers and they're worried about those, the quality of care that their children get. I still have a dream of being able to do something specific, an entire condominium or apartment single mothers to live in rent-free until they kind of get on their feet. Well, do that. Poor. Well, you may not be physically poor, materially poor, but you may be poor in spirit right now. You may be down. You're, you, may, you may be emotionally broke. You lost the spirit of hope. You may be poor in self-respect right now for something that's gone on in your life. You think because you're down on yourself, God is. He's not. He's not. Whatever you may think about yourself and however broke you might be right now in self-confidence, God still has confidence in you and loves you and believes in you. He's promised to help you. Poor. The broken-hearted. I'm looking at the faces of a lot of people I know who've got a broken heart. These flowers up here represent someone whose heart has been broken for someone loved. A lot of you have had flowers up here. That's real, isn't it? Ever see a little child cry over a broken toy? Say, oh, that's not anything. It's something to the child. Don't start judging somebody else's anguish, heartbreak. We never know what's going on down underneath that external placid surface. Some people don't, don't wear all their troubles on their sleeve, but they carry them around their heart. If your heart broken, Jesus has come to heal your broken heart. That's what he said he's come to do. Isn't that good news? Brother, that is good news. Good news to the poor, good news for the brokenhearted. Captives shall be released. I remember speaking in... Uh, Switzerland at this conference about the ministries we have here to alcoholics and to people who are in, into one kind of dependency or another. And a young man, a young minister over there came up and he said, I've never said this at my church or anywhere where, where I'm now serving, but he said, uh, I'm an alcoholic. He said, I haven't, uh, he said, I've been dry now for years, but, but he said, I just want to thank you for being a church that cares for people like that because he said, I went to church and I was made, when anybody got a hint of my problem, I was made to feel guilty and closed out. And the last thing he said to me was, Buckner, keep telling them that God loves them. Just keep telling them that God loves them. So I've kept a covenant with a young man who pastors in Europe. I'm going to tell you, God loves you. And if somehow you need to be released from something that's burdening you or blinding you or handicapping you or eclipsing your effectiveness or managing your life, He'll help you with that. Promise to do that. That's good news. And he'll release the downtrodden, shall be freed from their oppressors. Now, I believe that's supposed to be done individually. I don't have any question about that. The Lord wants to deliver us from anything that oppresses us. But I don't believe you can have a belief in your heart that doesn't eventually reflect itself in the way you live and even the way you vote. Even the way you vote. 
It took a lot of folks in the South a long time to finally believe that the Bible said that we were not to have slaves. And a lot of us have some scars to show what you go through when you say that God's colorblind. And we could tell you the names of about 300 families that once left this church because we said God's colorblind. And the red and yellow, black and white are all precious in His sight, not just in children's Sunday school, but in big church on Sunday morning. And the freedom that doesn't reach out to deliver people from the shackles of a political tyranny isn't worthy of the name freedom. God's ready to give blessings to all who come to Him. You hear that word all? That means all of us. Syrian lepers and Lebanese widows. All of us. And whatever the reaction's going to be out there in the religious community, it's not our primary responsibility, is it? We'd like for everybody to say amen, but everybody may not say amen. But we need to be as a church and in whatever religious confederation and cooperation we get involved in, we need to be a part of a fellowship that says whether you are a Lebanese woman, widow, or a Syrian leper, or whoever you are, or whatever you are, the grace of God is for you. I'm going to tell you a story that I made up, and then I'm through. <laughs> I'll tell you a little parable. Have you ever made up a parable? You ought to do it. I got inspired to do this. I read in that chapter in the book of Matthew where Jesus, I believe it's 12 or 13 different times, said the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, and he tells what the kingdom of God is like. I think it's some of these retreats we have. Mike, we maybe do this with the uh, young adult retreat in September. Get people together in little groups and say, come up with your own parable. What is the kingdom of God like to you in your terminology, in your culture, in your vernacular? What's it like? That's just nothing, no charge extra for that little insight. But here, I want, I want to tell you the story. In my imagination, I interviewed a guy by the name of Bart the other night. I interviewed Bart. And I want to tell you what uh, came out of our conversation. We were seated in a sidewalk cafe and we were talking. And I said, Bart, where'd you come from? He said, well, Buckner, I came a long way off. He said, I, he said, you know, I, I had trouble getting life all together. I, I had trouble seeing. I didn't know where I was going. Didn't know who I was. Um, I guess he'd say I was blind. He said, I tried to get some help, so I talked to my folks, and they said, oh, Bart, you need to see our good friend who's been a part of our life all these years, Dr. Moses. Yeah, Dr. Moses, he, he's, he's, your, he's your parents' doctor and your grandparents' doctor and your great-grandparents' doctor. Dr. Moses, he'll help you with that sight business. And Bart, after all, what's good enough for Moses ought to be good enough for you. So I went to see Dr. Moses, and, and he gave me some glasses to wear, and he said, they were horrible, but they were a little better than what I had. said, I put those glasses on, and Dr. Moses said, well, good luck. And I walked out, and I kept running into things, and I kept stumbling, and I kept falling. But I thought, well, it's at least a little better. I can see a little more clearly. 
what's right and what's wrong, but I don't seem to have the light to do it or the power to do it. But anyway, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad for Dr. Moses. He helped me. But then they opened a new clinic in our town. They called it the I&J Clinic, two doctors, Dr. Isaiah and Dr. Jeremiah had gone to school together and they formed a little clinic in our community. And they said, we can help you see a little better. So I went down there and uh, Dr. Isaiah and Dr. Jeremiah prescribed some glasses for me. And I, I put them on over Dr. Moses' glasses and you know, it was a little better. It, in fact, it, they, they, they got advanced enough that they were able to put Moses' lens in one eye and Dr. Isaiah and Jeremiah's lens in the other. And he said, I was a little dizzy for a while there trying to figure it out, but said, I was getting along pretty good. Getting along pretty good. And oh, and he said, Bugner, a business grew up around this thing. I mean, a big business. P and L Incorporated. What does that stand for? Law and Profits Incorporated. I mean, they had a, they had a thing going, man. They were manufacturing this stuff and giving it to people, had a lot of outlets. They called synagogues. Man, you go down there and you could get those, those glasses, the kind of bifocals. Got uh, Moses and Dr. Jeremiah, got the Law and the Prophets, got both of them going. But I still couldn't see very well. And I was dizzy a lot of the time. Wasn't clear. And he said, you know, I was sitting here in this sidewalk cafe one day and somebody started talking to me about a new doctor it was kind of an itinerant sort of doctor. Dr. J, they called him. <laughs> Dr. Jesus was going around the country and they were saying he was helping a lot of folks to see. I tried to get an appointment with him and I couldn't get past the receptionist. I mean, they wouldn't let me in. I went down there to the office. I did everything I knew. Well, in fact, they told me, get out of here. Shut up. Just quit bothering us. He's got more business than you handle. So he finally came to town one day, and I decided, take a chance. Dr. J, I can't see. Well, come here. What do you want me to do for you? Oh, I want some, I want some glasses that will help me see. He said, let me have those glasses. And he took them away and he said, just a word. And quicker than a laser beam, something happened inside my eyes. And he said, now, Bart, if you want to go on wearing those old rims, you can take those lenses out there and you wear those rims if you kind of like the form of it. If you kind of like the look of it. I mean, if you've grown up with that as sort of your background, that's okay. But you don't need that anymore. You can see now as clear as day. <gasps> well, how much? You know, I'm, I've got my Medicare thing here, and I've got my group policy. Uh, no, Bart, you don't understand, buddy. It's free. Free? Yeah. Free. Man, Buckner, you won't believe this. 
That L and P group ran him out of town. They ran him out of town. They, they thought his, what he was doing was a threat to their big business, to their enterprise. They ran him out of town. And I know you're not going to believe this, but it just sounds so strange. It's just almost impossible. It's incredulous, really. They got together, and they killed him. Killed him for helping me see free. But he said, I've heard some good news. You know what? He's been raised from the dead. And he is going everywhere now. I mean, he's knocking on the door of everybody's house in the whole world. Everybody. And you know what? He's picked up three more specialties along the way. He is not only an ophthalmologist, but he's also a cardiologist, and he's a psychologist, and he's a psychiatrist. He can give you a new heart in a moment, and a new mind, and new eyes, and a new relationship. He can make you new all over. And he comes calling. He's the only great physician I know that makes house calls. And he'll come to your house and your house and your house and your house. And you don't need a credit card and you don't need a check and you don't need your Medicare card. You don't need anything but to say, Lord, I want to see and you'll see. I need a new heart and you'll have a new heart. I need new attitudes and you'll have new attitudes. I need a new mind in me that's the kind of mind that you have in you and you'll have it for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall see, shall be saved, shall act differently, shall think differently, shall live differently because this doctor makes all things new. Amen.